Our passage this morning is from Matthew 28, 1 through 10. Please turn there in your Bible and follow along as I read. And if you need a Bible, there are Bibles placed under the chairs in front of you. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then, going quickly and, then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, now stand, and then sit, and then stand a few more times, and then sit two more times. All right, we'll see if you do it, we ask. Hi, I'm, I'm Pastor Ransom Kent, and uh, there's an elephant in the room right now for those of you that um, uh, go to church here on a regular basis, and let me just get that out of the way. Yes, your pastor owns a suit coat, um, and I'm wearing it. This is mine. I didn't borrow it from anybody. I own it. I bought it. It's mine. I've had it for some time, so just so you know. Uh, listen. Uh, we are here on Easter morning, and we are looking at Matthew 28, 1 through 10. Uh, this week, as I was studying, uh, I was asking questions of the text. It's kind of one of the ways that you can gather truth from Scripture. And one of the questions that I asked uh, ended up being the title of this sermon. I think it's a tough question. Uh, I think that um, uh, it's a question that, that might, might sound a little negative, but I think this question is actually fairly relevant to most any situation that might be listening online or here in this room. Let me explain. First of all, I think uh, this question uh, is relevant to those who are here this morning just to make their mom happy. I know that happens on Easter, uh, but I hope that there's something for you from this passage. If you're a Christian, and as Christians, we love to make up words or use these images. I call it Christianese. So if you're in a dry time or in the desert, you're in a time when when maybe you're not hearing much from God, I think this question is very relevant to you. If, you're, if you've been a Christian most of your life and you've heard the resurrection story a hundred times, I think this is a great question to ask. Uh, if you are a young Christian and you're just trying to figure out what God wants you to do, this question is the question that we need to ask and answer this morning. And that question is this, what good is the resurrection? What good is the resurrection? And let me explain to you the attitude I think that many of us have, even as Christians sometimes. We, we, we stand here, we sit here, and sometimes both at the same time and all mixed up, uh, on, on Easter morning, and we say, He is risen, and we respond, He is risen indeed. But sometimes, I think in our hearts, many of us, 
the, the answer in our heart, the answer that we actually want to give is, so what? He is risen, so what? Well, that's an awful downer for Easter morning. Well, it's going to get worse just for a moment, so bear with me, all right? So here's some things that I just want to get out of the way before we jump into the text. These are some things that the resurrection of Christ will not provide for us. Here's some things that the resurrection will not give us. The resurrection of Jesus will not make us more physically fit. (laughs) It won't make us more physically fit. The the resurrection of Christ won't grow our bank account or advance us in our career. Uh, The the resurrection of Christ doesn't guarantee us a good marriage, let alone a perfect one. The resurrection of Christ, unfortunately, parents, will not make your kids obey you. It won't. And if you have grown children, it won't make them make the decisions you hope they make. The resurrection of Christ doesn't help whatever your favorite, whoever your favorite political candidate is, win the election, doesn't clean your house, doesn't give you immunity to illness. It doesn't help you realize your dreams. That's not what the resurrection of Christ does for us. None of those things. And probably more. And so if our, if our focus in life is any of those kinds of things, earthly things, we're going to have a less than joyous response to He is risen. That's how that will go. And so this passage we're going to see this morning, it's going to give us, uh, it actually gives us the results of the resurrection. We'll see three things that the resurrection gives us, and then there's actually something missing from this passage that has something to teach us as well. So uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for us, and then uh, we'll jump into the passage and study together. Father in heaven, I pray that you give us joy once again. I pray this morning, as those who are here that know and believe in the resurrection of Christ are here, that if we find ourselves in one of those lackluster times, that your spirit would move on our emotions, that we would feel the joy of the resurrection this morning. For those that are here, and maybe they they outright deny that Jesus did what he did and said what he said, or he was who he said he was, I pray that there would be something for them as well. And so in short, I thank you for taking care of your people. My insufficiencies do not block your power, and so I pray for the power of the Spirit. I pray that you'd carry your word where it needs to be carried this morning. We pray these things in the name of our risen Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Okay, so three things the resurrection gives us. We'll start there. First of all, the resurrection gives us proof of who Jesus was. Proof of who Jesus was. Look at verses 1 through 4 with me. Just kind of give us an idea of what's going on in the story. Uh, We left off just before this, the, the benediction of our Good Friday service. Jesus is in the tomb. Mary and Mary are sitting there with uh, Salome, the, the, the um, mother of the brothers of Zebedee. It's a whole lot of relationships there. And, and it's just a dark, sad time. And so what we have here, we have these two ladies going to the tomb. Other narratives of the crucifixion story or the resurrection story say they're going to, to leave spices and things. But what happens is that on their way, there's a great earthquake. An angel of the Lord comes down. He rolls back the stone. He sits on it. The guards pass out, and then Mary and Mary arrive, and he speaks with them. Look at verse 5 and 6 with me. Here's what the angel says. So they arrive, and obviously there's a lot going on. They're very afraid. And here's what the angel says to them 
in their fear. Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. But He is not here, for He has risen as He said. Let's just stop right there. As He said. As He said. Jesus Christ has been talking about His crucifixion, and not just that, but His resurrection throughout His ministry. And the fact that the tomb is empty is proof that He is who He says He is. I was trying to think of a way to summarize who Jesus says He is, and I think the best way to do it in maybe less than a minute is to go through the Gospel of John. Jesus makes seven I Am statements in that, in that Gospel. He says things about Himself. And so listen to these. From John 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. This is more than just this uh, uh, actual physical food. This is food for our souls. Nourishment for who we are um, in, in eternity. He says, I am the light of the world, meaning He is the truth, the only truth in a world full of deception. I am the door for the sheep in John 10, and I am the good shepherd in John 10, meaning there's only one way to be in the kingdom, and it is through me. And I am the one who actually gathers in and protects my sheep, my people. He told his friend Mary, a different Mary, after her brother had died, right before he raised him from the dead, I am the resurrection and the life. Eternal life. Jesus is the one who, as we see here, is the, is the firstborn of the resurrection. right? The first fruits of the resurrection. And He is the one who will bring others back to life. He sums it all up in John 14. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Those are all these, not A's. The way, the truth, the life. And in John 15, I am the true vine. He's the source He's the Creator. We read that in, in Colossians 1 for our, our confession of faith today. Through Him and for Him, all things were created. He's the vine. He's the source. That's who Jesus said He was. The resurrection proves that it is true. Think back over the last several months, starting this fall, we started with the Sermon on the Mount. Think about everything we've heard Jesus say, everything we've learned about Him through Matthew Everything that we have heard, church, through those sermons, the resurrection proves them to be true. We learn from the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus, and with His resurrection to follow, that Jesus has the authority to define what kingdom life looks like. He can, and He does. He is the one who designed it. Think about the messages that we've heard Christ teach about His his, his judgment over all people, over the inheritance, waiting for those who believe in Him, over how He is the only way to salvation. The empty tomb is the proof that those things are true. I think about the power that He demonstrates over sickness, over nature, over molecules of food and water. And now we see that He has even power over death itself. And so who is Jesus? What does the resurrection prove about Jesus it proves that He is the glorious King of everything. The glorious King of everything. And He deserves our full allegiance. He is God in the flesh. The resurrection confirms it. It's true. The resurrection not only gives us proof of who Jesus is, it provides a clear object of worship. That's the second thing provided by the resurrection. Look at the entire passage, if you look at it from a certain perspective, this passage actually has a ton of movement. It's actually fairly frantic. Verse 1, Mary and Mary are going. There's an earthquake. The angel descends, and then the guards pass out, and then Mary and Mary arrive. And he says, look in there, it's empty. Now he says, go quickly. 
Go tell the disciples. So they leave in fear and joy. But there's also just one moment of stillness. There's one moment of stillness in this passage, and it's verse 9. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Amongst all this frantic activity, they stop to worship Christ. Now, think about this. They actually have urgent business. It's not like they're just taking a stroll. It's pretty important to go tell the disciples what's going on. This is important. But yet, it's not more important than stopping and recognizing their new reality. Mary and Mary are living now in a... There was before Jesus rose from the grave, and now there is Jesus is risen from the grave. It's a whole new reality that causes them to stop their their mission, stop the thing they've been asked to do to worship Jesus Christ. He is the glorious King of everything. He's worth their undivided attention. Good Friday, we traced four betrayals. We, We started with... Uh, Judas. Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Then we showed how the disciples said, no, we'll never, we'll never d- d- uh, betray you, Jesus. And then Peter, what does he do? He's the one who said, most of all, if they, even they will betray you, but I never will. And what happens? He betrays them. And then the crowds betrayed Jesus. But here we have Jesus in verse 10 showing us the third thing we get from the resurrection. Look at verse 10. Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. I want you to understand how amazing it is that Jesus uses that word. Jesus uses the word brothers. Who is he talking about? The 12 disciples who basically scattered and left him for dead a few days ago. What we learn from the resurrection and the amazing moment that Jesus calls the disciples brothers that from the resurrection, Jesus provides forgiveness and restoration. Forgiveness and restoration. Think about it. If our best friends have somehow left us for dead, and and then we saw them a few days later, there would be at least a little resentment, I think. At least a little resentment. We all saw this maybe in high school when we got into trouble as a group, but everybody sold you out. Something like that. You feel a little bit of resentment. But here Jesus is joyously saying, go tell my brothers, I will meet them. I will meet them. This is not just good news for the 12, I guess for the 11. This is also good news for us. Because what was the fourth betrayal on Good Friday? It's us. Our ongoing sin. The sins we commit today, the sins we commit tomorrow, the sins we committed yesterday are all betrayals of Jesus. They nailed Him to the cross. And yet, Jesus Christ calls us what? Brothers and sisters. We were in our elder and deacon training this last Monday, and we started talking about uh, this word brokenness. And you'll hear more about this word brokenness in this next sermon series. It's a word that we like. We, We like this word here at Grace. And it's a word that we think has a complex and deep meaning. But sometimes, brokenness can highlight only parts of our brokenness. Meaning, you hear the word brokenness, you tend to think, and it highlights the idea that we are victims of sin. Are we all victims of sin? You better believe it. We all have been on the hurting end, the receiving end, of someone else's sin, sometimes our own. 
But this word sin that we don't usually like to deal with, it, it has this connotation, and that connotation is that we are also villains. Villains and victims. And so, as we think about this concept, we have to understand that we have perpetrated a betrayal against Christ. We're not just victims of sin. We're villains against Christ and what He calls us brothers and sisters. He calls us that. Do we deserve it? No. In no way. But He does it anyway. So we learn from this that that Christ pursues His betrayers in love. Do you hear that message? He pursues His betrayers in love. He doesn't say, hey, tell the disciples where I'm at and if they want to make the time. No, I'm going to go meet them. I'm going to go find them. No bitterness. I'm nothing that Christ pursues me in love. But He does it anyway. Why? Because of the resurrection. So these are the, the three quick, as we look at this passage, results of the resurrection. First, we have proof of Christ's divinity. Second, we're given a clear object of worship. Nothing but Christ. Third, we're offered forgiveness and restoration. But I told you there's something missing. Something missing from this passage. In fact, there's something missing from every narrative of the resurrection. It's not there. And what's missing is the actual account of the resurrection itself. Have you ever noticed that? The moment when when God and the Holy Spirit and God the Son Jesus are reunited. You see, in verse 6, look at verse 6. He is not here, for He has risen as He said. Come and see the place where He lay. They didn't move the stone to let Jesus out. Oh, let me out! He wasn't in there. They moved the stone to show Mary and Mary it had already happened. It had already happened. Michael Green, his commentary on Matthew is very very easy to comprehend, and he says this about this moment. It had been, uh, the, the tomb had been emptied by divine agency, not human activity. The tomb was already empty. The tomb was already empty. Death had already been defeated. And so, hear me on this. The resurrection of Christ is not dependent upon human witnesses. It's not dependent on it. God didn't wait for Mary and Mary to get there to say, okay, now's the time. Let's show them what's going on. No, it had already happened. It had already happened. God was at work on His own. And hear this as well. The resurrection is not dependent upon human belief. Human belief. Let's talk about the movie Elf for a moment, okay? Just a quick left turn. Um, I'm going to spoil the ending of Elf just a little bit, so if you haven't seen it, I'm sorry, but maybe you'll forget by the time Christmas rolls around. At the end of Elf, Santa Claus crashes in Central Park. His sleigh is inoperable. Oh no. What are we going to do? And what happens is you learn that on the dashboard of his sleigh is this thing called the clausometer. The clausometer. And, and what we learn is that his sleigh, his magic is dependent upon people believing in him. Poor Santa. No one believes in Santa anymore. And so what happens? They have to muster up people's belief in Santa to get his sleigh flying. Let me tell you something. There is no crossometer. Jesus isn't wringing his hands and crossing his fingers saying, please believe in me so that my resurrection has power. No, it doesn't depend on that. 
It happened. It has power. It does not depend on us believing in it for that to be true. And so the fact that this event in history carries significance for eternity and the fact that we're not needed for it, there's something there for us, church. I was reminded of the Israelites escaping Egypt. I preached on this many months ago, but, but they, they're leaving Egypt. Moses has, Pharaoh has finally said, I've had it, get out of here. And so they're on their way to the wilderness. They come to the Red Sea and they're like, well, where are we going now? And then Pharaoh's army starts coming up from behind and they say, Moses, great, just great. You brought us out here to die, haven't you? And here's what Moses says to the people of Israel in that moment. Listen, from Exodus 14, fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. The Lord will fight for you, and what is their role in it? You have only to be silent. You have only to be silent. People, if you're listening now, understand this. The resurrection took place without us. We didn't have any effort involved. We didn't have to intervene in any way. We didn't have to be witnesses to it. God did it on His own. Humanity had only to be silent while Christ was raised from the grave. So we, we learn from this. This is interesting. The resurrection is not about me. It's not about you. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. I imagine, this is extra biblical, but I imagine this, that in that moment that, that God was like a kid on, on Christmas morning coming back to be reunified with God the Son. Remember what happened in Matthew 27. Jesus cries out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The first time in eternity that God had turned His back on Himself. And so this moment of the resurrection reserved for the Trinity alone. Their reunion. So church, listen. Salvation is accomplished by God for who? For God. For God. In the Old Testament, He says it all through the prophets. I will save My people. Why? For My name's sake. For My name's sake. And so this morning, we have to realize that the Father planned salvation, the Son endured what was necessary for salvation, the Spirit empowers salvation. The Father planned the resurrection, the Son endured what was necessary for that to be true, and the Spirit empowered the resurrection. We had no role in it whatsoever. And even though we played no part, our salvation was secured. Wow. <laughs> our salvation was secured. God has done it. They are satisfied with their work. And so in a general sense, let's ask the question, what good is the resurrection? What good is it? It's the only good. It's the only good. It's the only source of complete good that there ever will be. It gives us the truth of the living Christ. That is good. It's our only basis for forgiveness and acceptance. It is the defeat of death. Praise the Lord. And so, He is risen, so what? Here's so what. The resurrection gives us the living, ruling, worthy of all worship, forgiving, pursuing, loving Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what the resurrection gives us. Let's bring it down to a finer point. 
If you're here this morning and, and you're not a Christian, what good is the resurrection for you? What good is the resurrection for you? And, and as I was thinking about how to answer that question, I really felt compelled to talk about the defeat of death. Let's talk about the pandemic for a moment, all right? Let's talk about what we've all been through. A year ago, we were sitting at home right now, watching a, a pre-recorded video of Easter. It is so good to be together, is it not? Let's talk about the pandemic. How does humanity go about defeating death? How do we do it? How do we defeat death? Well, we, we certainly stop going to the movies. We stop going to restaurants. We stop traveling. We stop having relationships. We shut it all down. We shut it all down. Why? To defeat death. And I'm not asking this tongue-in-cheek. I'm asking legitimately, how good are we at defeating death? <laughs> not great. Not great. Now, you might say, well, we could have done some different things. And, but listen, we are all going to die. Can't defeat that. And don't forget the other thing we had to do to defeat death. We had to buy lots and lots and lots and lots of toilet paper. That's, that's the X factor. Don't forget that. The more toilet paper, the longer you'll live. I think that was the formula that we were using. But listen, listen to this. In Christ, in Jesus Christ, the only being I know that has ever on his own defeated death, that's where death is actually defeated. Actually defeated. There's no other way but through Jesus Christ. One scholar I read this week said that the resurrection launches a new creation. You see, Jesus is a foretaste of what is to come. We will all face physical death. There is something after. There's something deeper than physical life. It's called eternal life. An eternity with Christ with no sickness, no sadness, no sin. That appeals to me. I think that appeals to everybody. We want that now. It doesn't exist now. It can't exist now by human efforts. It can only exist through the resurrected Lord. So the question might be, well, how do I partake in that? Well, here's the good news. You don't have to shut your life down. You don't have to break relationships. You don't have to live some kind of stoic, hermit-style life to, to get this eternal life. You actually have to add a relationship. You add a relationship to your life. You enter into a relationship with the one who pursues his betrayers in love. That's who Jesus is. That's who wants to know you, wants you to know him. The scriptures tell us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, he's not waiting for you to straighten it all out. He wants you to be with him. He has provided a way for you to be saved. And the angel says it, he is not here. He has risen as He said. And the Scriptures also tell us, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's it. It's a relationship. You enter in. You say, I believe that I deserve the cross. I believe that I am not just a victim. I'm also the villain. But I believe also, Jesus Christ, that you pursue me, the villain, in love. That's what good the resurrection is for those. Now church, what good is the resurrection for us? I think that's an important question to ask. We all lose our way. We all lose kind of the luster of, of, of Easter. And, and I think that uh, 
if we look at, at Mary and Mary, not often do we get someone from the Bible that we're like, yeah, we ought to be more like Mary and Mary. But I think Mary and Mary in this passage actually give us something that we should emulate. The first thing from verse 9 is that Mary and Mary stopped and worshipped. They stopped what they were doing. They stopped where they were going, and they worshipped the risen Christ. Remember why they did that. He was their new reality. There was a time before He was alive again, and then there was this time. The resurrected Lord. That was their new reality. Church, we have a new reality. If we have come to Christ in faith, we have a new reality. We're not living waiting to kick the bucket. That's not what our life is. We're living for eternity. The resurrection is actually the substance of our past, our present, and our future. We're living for something else. We have a different reality. And just like this passage, I think my life is frantic. I'm running here. I'm running there. I'm doing this. And how often do I encounter Christ and I should stop and worship, but I say, okay, Lord, I'm actually doing this for the church, so hold on a second. I don't stop and worship. They do it. Paul in Colossians, Colossians 3, he talks about this idea. He says because of the resurrection, because of this new reality, we should set our minds on our new reality, on Christ in heaven. And we should live for heaven, not live for the earth. So this idea, that, that long list of things I... I read at the beginning, if we live for those things, those things are earthly things. They're not eternal things. The second thing they demonstrate is in verse 8. Actually, two things in verse 8. They departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. Let's talk about joy first. They had great joy that the tomb was empty. Great joy that Christ was risen. And I think this morning, if you want me to name obstacles to joy of the resurrection, I think there's two. One, if you just don't believe it's true, why would you be joyous about it? The second thing is if you're trying to take the resurrection and coerce it to get what you want from it, you'll lose joy. That's not what it's for. Jesus, the resurrected Lord, is not something we control. It's not like salt added to food. It's not an additive to our life. He is the meal. He is the center. He is our lives. And thinking, church, thinking about our sin, thinking about what, what God did without us accomplishing the resurrection, the fact that He's invited us graciously and mercifully into this whole, full relationship of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, even now as sinners, how can we not have joy over that? And so... What's the problem? Where are we missing it? I think just like those who are seeking Christ or don't know Christ, it's about a relationship, church. It's not about what we can get from it. It's about the relationship. And so, what is our only hope? Knowing Christ. Relationship. What is the only source of joy in this life? What is the best blessing that we can receive in this life? Knowing Christ. The relationship. John 17 describes Jesus in the prayer just before His crucifixion. He defines eternal life. And here's what He says. Eternal life is knowing the only true God and the Son who sent Him. Knowing them. Knowing them. Relationship. 
Christ is risen, and that changes everything for us. But I like that the ladies also ran away in fear. That's real. That's real. A lot had happened for them. What is going on? This is crazy. And I think, too, our lives are marked with fear still. You see, Jesus Christ is risen. We have yet to be resurrected. And what does that mean? That there is disappointment in front of us. That there is hurt. That we are yet still to be the victim of sin. We are yet still to be the villain of of sin. There is still sickness ahead of us. There is still ahead of us, all of us, physical death. And those things scare us. Let's be real. They scare us. They cause trepidation, but here's what the Christian life is. It's it's constantly reminding ourselves where to place our trust. Do we trust the things of this world? Do we trust our bank account? Do we trust our marriage? Do we trust how we look? Do we trust how people think about us, what they say about us? Or do we trust the risen Lord? And so church, what is the Christian life? It's spending our days knowing God better, seeking to know Christ more reminding ourselves of our new reality. And what is our new reality? He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let me pray for us. Father, thank You for being satisfied in Yourself. Thank You for not needing us to meet Your own needs. The salvation that comes from a secure God who knows the plan, who executes the plan, who does what He's going to do independent of me, a sinner, is a salvation that is secure. It has nothing to do with me. And so, I don't have to perform for you. I don't have to be of a certain character or have certain attributes to be saved by you. I can simply be a wretch, not worthy of salvation, and yet still I can be saved by the grace that You offer. Praise Your name. I pray that as we approach the table, that this truth would become real as the bread and the wine goes down our throats, that we would know that You are the bread of life, that You are risen from the dead, that our salvation is secure only in the resurrected Lord. We praise Your name. We pray for Your glory. And all these things... Pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.